الله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Well, the praise belongs to Allah, we praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead Him astray, and whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide Him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone, and that he has no partners or associates and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger. Although there are many other companions of the Prophet who married from him, 
slightly different wordings for tashahud and they are also correct and sahih and it is permissible to use any one of those which have been recorded authentically and this one is considered the preferable one. The other point uh, that we mentioned last week, two points of ikhtilaf, uh, one of them is that the scholars were in agreement concerning the taslim uh, at the end of the salat that it is legislated to say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah uh, but they differed as to whether or not the taslim is one taslim or is there two and we said that the most correct opinion is that there are two taslims due to the many authentic hadith reporting uh, this manner of saying assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah to the right and then to the left and the shaykh said here that the hadith was reported one are not authentic but for the sake of argument if we say that they were authentic then still the <coughs> pronouncement of two taslims is more complete and more perfect and there is no contradiction uh, between the two reports of one or two and we said that in fact it has been reported authentically as mentioned by Shaykh Muhammad Nasruddin al-Albani in his book Iriyal al that there is indeed an authentic report from the Prophet وسلم, that he did on occasion make one taslim just to the right side and not to the left side in any case the preferable manner and the most common practice of the Prophet وسلم, was to make uh, two taslims first to the right and then to the left and the last point of istilaf concerning the hadith uh, was the scholars differed as to whether or not it was obligatory to make taslim. I mean, they all agree that making taslim is legislated, but is it is its ruling that it is mustahab, or is its ruling that it's wajib? And they differed concerning this, uh, some of them saying that it was wajib, and others saying that it's not wajib. It's not wajib. If someone didn't do it, the prayer would still be accepted. And those who said that it wasn't wajib are the Hanafi scholars, and they used as proof the hadith of Ibn Umar that the Prophet said if one of you raise your head from sajda, from prostration, and then he sits, and then he validates, invalidates, violates, or nullifies his ablution or state of purification, then his, his salat will still be complete. And even though he didn't make taslim, his salat will still be complete. And this hadith, those who said, who rejected this idea, they said, that this hadith is not a proof since that hadith is a hadith that is agreed upon by the scholars of hadith to be weak it is not an authentic hadith uh, and they also said as a proof those who said that it's not obligatory they mentioned the hadith uh, that is referred to um, as the hadith of the man who didn't perform his salat well uh, and they said in that hadith, the Prophet ﷺ explained to him how to perform the salat in detail and he didn't mention uh, the taslim. Therefore they said, if it was obligatory, he would have mentioned it. The fact that he didn't mention it is a proof that it's not obligatory. Um, the other scholars, they said in response to them that there are many things which were not mentioned in that hadith the hadith concerning the man who didn't perform the salat well and some of those things are obligatory and some of them are not so this, the fact that it wasn't mentioned in that hadith is not a proof that it's not obligatory as long as there are other authentic proofs which indicate that the taslim is a necessary and obligatory part of the salat then there's no contradiction between the fact that he mentioned it in one hadith and he didn't mention it 
in another hadith. It is extra information from an authentic source and we accept it and we practice it. The second opinion concerning this matter, uh, those who said that it is obligatory, this is the majority of the companions of the Prophet and their students, the Tabi'een, and from amongst the uh, founders of the Madahib of Fiqh, the Shafi'i uh, Madhab and the Hanbali Madhab hold that it is wajib. And they used as proof the fact that the Prophet always uh, pronounced the Tasleem when he performed Salat, he always did it. And he said, pray as you have seen me praying. And he ordered us to pray in the way that he prayed. And this means that therefore you must make Tasleem at the end of the Salat. And they also mentioned as a proof the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, was recorded in the books of Sunan that the tahreem of the salat is takbir and the tahleel of the salat is tasleem that means that uh, the person enters the prayer and are prohibited from doing or saying anything outside of the acts of prayer by saying takbir and then they are freed from that prohibition by making tasleem therefore tasleem is a necessary part of the salat the Hadith, the next hadith which we took last week, hadith number 81, is the hadith of Abdul Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, may Allah be pleased with him and his father, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana yarta'u yadayhi hadwa man kibayhi ila tataha as-salat. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to raise his hands up to his shoulders, to the level of his shoulders, whenever he used to begin the prayer. Ayla kabbara lirruku. And when he used to go to the bowing position, uh, and he said, Allahu Akbar, he made takbir every time he went to the ruku, a bowing position, he used to raise his hands also. وَإِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُمَا الرُّقُوْ رَفَعَهُمَا رَفَعَهُمَا كَذَلِكَ يعني And also when he used to raise his head up from the bowing position, uh, back to the standing position, he used to raise his two hands likewise, يعني up to the level of his shoulders. Uh, then he said, وَقَالَ uh, And he used to say at that time, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدِ This is the supplication that he used to say when he was rising, he would say سَمِّ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمْدَ And when he had reached the standing position and he was standing up straight, he would say رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدِ وَكَانَ لَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ فِي السُّجُودِ And he did not used to do so. Yani he didn't used to raise his hands uh, when he said takbir for going to sajda. When he was standing and he was going to the sajda or prostration position, he used to say takbir, but he didn't used to raise his hand at that time. Uh, concerning this hadith, there is also some point of difference of opinion. Uh, and the difference of opinion is concerning the takbir or the raising of the hands for the takbir. The scholars are in agreement that it is legislated in Islam uh, that a person should raise their hands when they make the takbir of ihram the first takbir in the beginning of the prayer this has been reported in Mutawatir hadith hadith which came by innumerable chains of narrators about which there is no doubt in any question the scholars are in agreement that the raising of the hands of the first takbir is legislated in Islam and this has been reported from about 50 of the companions of the Prophet وسلم, including the 10 who were promised paradise where the scholars differ is concerning the raising of the hands for the other takbirs besides takbir to ihram. After the first takbir, the scholars differ. Should a person raise their hands at the time of the other takbirs or not? Or when should they raise their hands at the time of takbir? So the majority of the companions of the Prophet and the tabi'een and those who came after them, 
including the two Imams Shafi and Ahmed Rahimahumullah, said that it is mustahab to raise the hands when making takbir in the three places that are mentioned in this hadith. In the three places that are mentioned in this hadith. That is, in the beginning of the salat, takbir to ihram, and in going to ruku and rising from ruku. These three places are agreed upon by majority of Sahaba and Tabi'een and the Imams al-Shafi and Ahmed that it is mustahab to raise hands in these three places. Ibn al-Majid, one of the scholars said, and this is important to repeat here because many people, based on their madhab, raise their hands for the takbir to ihram and they don't raise their hands on any other occasion because their madhab says so. But if the hadith of the Prophet show that he used to do so in any other position, how can we abandon it? I mean, based on what? One of the great scholars of hadith, Ali ibn who was one of the teachers of Imam al-Bukhari, he said that this hadith, which mentioned the raising of the hands, not, not only for the tahbir to ihram, but also for going to ruku and raising from ruku, he said that it is a hujjah ala al-khalq, it is a proof against the whole of creation. No one can make an excuse why they didn't raise their hands after this hadith uh, has been reported authentically from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that he used to do so regularly. He said, "وَمَنْ سَمِعَهُ فَعَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَفْعَلْ أَنْ whoever heard this hadith, then it is obligatory on him to practice it. Also, one of the latest scholars, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah, said that the raising of the hands uh, by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in these three places. And these three places have been mentioned by more than 30 companions. And the raising of the hands in general is reported by more than 50 of the companions of the Prophet And these three places specifically have been mentioned in hadith from more than 30 of the companions of the Prophet And it is agreed upon in the narration of the 10 companions of the Prophet who were promised paradise. And Imam Hatim, uh, the author or the collector of the book Al-Mustadraq, he said that we do not know of any sunnah besides this sunnah of raising the hands in these particular places. We don't know of any other sunnah who, which has been narrated in agreement by all of the four khulafa, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhum, In addition to them, the ten people promised a paradise, and in addition to them, the major companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We don't know if any other sunnah that is agreed upon by all of them, like this sunnah was agreed upon. How can anybody then abandon it? Uh, another, yani in addition to this opinion, another opinion is that which has been reported in Imam Ahmed and others of the scholars who came after him, such as Ibn Taymiyyah and Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'adi, who was a contemporary scholar. Uh, and he has also been reported in narration from Imam Shafi, rahimahullah, a, a group of the companions uh, and, and, the, and many of the scholars of Ahl Hadith that raising of the hands is mustahab in a fourth place. Not only these three places, yani the takbir to ihram, going to ruku and coming from ruku, but there is a fourth place where the raising of the hands has been reported to be mustahab, and it is when the person stands up after a recitation of tashahud in the second rakah, when they stand up for the third rakah, it is also mustahab and is reported in authentic hadith that one should raise the hand uh, at the time of rising for the third rakah. And this is from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as reported by al-Bukhari on the authority of Ibn Umar. He said that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to do so. 
for these propositions is sunnah and it is authentically reported and it should be practiced. Uh, let me mention some other hadith as proofs of it. And the second opinion is the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah and it has also been reported in a very famous and well-known narration from Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah that it is not mustahab to raise the hands at any takbir other than the takbir of ihram and after takbir of ihram it is not mustahab to raise your hands this is the opinion of Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahumullah no evidence is the hadith reported by Al-Bara ibn Azib that he said I saw the Muslim of Allah sallallahu begin the prayer he raised his hands and then he did not raise his hands any other time that hadith uh, has also been agreed upon by the scholars of hadith that the words ثُمَّ لَمْ يَعْرِقْ then he didn't raise his hands again that this is mudrij and it means that it was a statement that was added to the hadith by one of the reporters, one of the narrators not from the Prophet therefore it's not a proof for them for their opinion that you shouldn't raise your hands anymore after Kathmira uh, Tihar we also use as proof uh, that which has been reported from Abdul ibn Mas'ud in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed in the Sunnah of Abu Dawud and Tirmidhi, uh, the statement that no one of you, um, uh, he said that I, that I will pray for you the salat, yani, the salat as it used to be performed by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then he prayed and he didn't raise his hands except one time, meaning the first time of the Ta'bir to Ihram. And this hadith was considered Hassan by Tirmidhi and it was also considered to be authentic by Ibn Hazm, Imam Ibn Hazm. Uh, but it has not been confirmed by those who are more knowledgeable in hadith such as Abdullah ibn Mubarak and ibn Abi Hatim and even Abu Dawood himself who was one of the collectors of that hadith he said that this hadith is not sahih in this way he himself also, he married the hadith but he said it's not sahih uh, so the summary of this issue is that there are four times which are mustahab to raise the hands at the time of takbir the takbir to ihram the takbir of going to ruku, bowing, the takbir of coming up from ruku, from the bowing position to standing position, and also when a person rises for the third rakah after the tashahud, uh, the first tashahud. Then from this hadith he mentioned a number of rulings. Number one, that it is mustahab to raise the hands for the takbir to ihram by consensus or ijma of the scholars. And the majority of the scholars also said that it is mustahab to raise the hand in these other occasions that we mentioned going to Ruku, coming from Ruku, uh, and uh, rising up for the third rakam. And that this raising of the hand should be up to the level of the shoulders, and also that the Prophet ﷺ did not raise his hand when he made takbir for going to sajda. Uh, then he said that the wisdom or the hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this, the raising of the hands, uh, there are many uh, reasons that the scholars explain as being the reason or the purpose for it or the wisdom behind it. The one that they are in agreement upon is that the raising of the hands is an act of ibadah. It is an act of ibadah performed by the hands. This is agreed upon by the scholars uh, and that's sufficient but also some of them said that it beautifies the salat or it is a, a beautification for the salat, the raising of the hands uh, in these positions and also that the raising of the hands represents or it might represent the raising up of the 
screen or the curtain of unmindfulness between the servant of Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yani when a person enters the prayer, when they raise their hands, they should be conscious that they are entering into communication with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and should try to uh, develop and to increase and to concentrate on the fact that they are communicating uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this salat. And they also said the raising of the hands, the movement of the hands is a cause for the movement or the tahrik of the heart. Yani that the heart should become more conscious from such. And Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah said that the raising of the hands, it has two major uh, wisdoms behind it. One of them is the glorification or exaltation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the other one is, it is an expression of following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. Okay, that, that's the hadith from last week. The hadith for tonight, the first hadith, I will take hadith number 82. The author says, he mentioned the hadith, An Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu may Allah be pleased with him and his father, that is, may Allah be pleased with Abdullah, and may Allah be pleased with his, his father, Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, radiallahu anhu ajma'in. قال, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم he said that is Abdul ibn Abbas said the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said أمرت أن أسجد على سبع أعظم that I have been commanded or ordered to prostrate on seven bones this is a command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and the command to the Prophet is also a command to his ummah and followers and then he gave explanation of what those seven points are. He said, "Ala al jabha," that is the forehead, wa ashara biyadhi ila anfi. And the Prophet when he said "Ala al jabha," he pointed to his nose, indicating that the nose should also be prostrated upon when the person puts their forehead on the ground. But the nose is included with the forehead. Waliyadain uh, the two hands, the palms of the hands. وَرُقْبَتَيْنِ the knees, the two knees وَأَكْرَفَ الْقَدَمَيْنِ and the extremities of the feet يعني the, the feet should also be prostrated upon but it means that the end of the feet should be prostrated on not the uh, surface, upper surface of the feet but the, on the toes bending, pointing towards the qibla in the end of this hadith he said although it's not mentioned here in our book but when I found the hadith in Al-Bukhari the Prophet ﷺ is also reported to have said in this hadith وَلَا مَكْفِتَ الثِّيَابَ وَلَا الشَّعْرَ Here he said that uh, and the Prophet ﷺ said and do not gather or fold or roll up the toes or the hair and that a person when they are in salat they should not roll up their clothing and some of the scholars such as Al-Imam Al-Nawi and other scholars of hadith in explaining this hadith they said that the rolling up of the clothing means that a person shouldn't roll up their sleeves when they are going to perform salat if a person did it unconsciously they made wudu and they forgot to take their sleeves down inshallah there is no harm in it but no one should intentionally roll up their sleeves or roll up their soul or roll up their clothing uh, at the time when they are performing salat nor should they tie their hair together they shouldn't tie the hair down but it should be let loose at the time when a person is performing salat uh, here the shaykh says the general meaning of this hadith is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa to prostrate on seven members of the body 
And these are the most noble and honorable parts of the body and the best of them. The first of them is the jabha, the forehead along with the nose. The second of them and third, the second and third are the two hands, where the two hands should be in direct contact with the ground. Yani the inner, the palms of the hands should be in direct contact with the ground and facing the tibia. The fourth and fifth of them is the rakbatain, the two rakbatain, the two knees. And the sixth and seventh part are the extremities of the feet and they should be pointed, the toes of the two feet should be pointed towards the tibia. And then he said, that Allah SWT also ordered the Prophet SallAllahu uh, in ordering him, that order is also uh, directed towards his followers because it is a general legislation يعني, the legislation of the, the manner of performance of sajda it is general for all of the Muslims, not specifically for the Prophet SallAllahu he said, umirtu, I have been ordered but the meaning of it is that also we are ordered with what he is ordered with unless it is a special injunction that is made clear it's exclusively for the Prophet otherwise, whatever he has been ordered with uh, whatever has been legislated for him is legislated for the Ummah in general concerning this hadith, there is a point of difference of opinion where the scholars, uh, they agreed first that it is mishru'a that is legislated to make sajda or sujood on these seven parts. All the scholars agree that this is part of the salat. But they differed about whether or not the ruling concerning the frustration on these seven parts, is it wajib or not? Is it wajib? If we say that it's wajib, if a person doesn't frustrate on any one of those parts, that means they have committed a sin. But if we say that it's not wajib, it's mustahab, if they didn't do it, then there's no blame on them. Though they lose the reward of the completion or perfection of the salat because whatever is mustahab should be done in order to complete uh, and perfect the act of worship which they are doing. So the scholars differ about whether or not this prostration in this manner is wajib. And there are three opinions. The first of them uh, is that which is indicated by this authentic hadith and it is that the sujood uh, should be performed on the seven members of the body that are mentioned in this hadith because the Prophet said I am ordered to do so. And this is the well-known position of the madhab of Imam Ahmed rahimahullah ta'ala. The second opinion is a group of scholars who said that it is wajib to prostrate on the forehead and for the rest of the parts they are only mustahab. Yani in prostration they said the important thing is that you put your forehead on the ground. This is the most important part. The honored part of the human being is their head. And anyone who puts their head down or bows their head, this is a sign of humiliation or submission. So the most important part they said is putting the head on the ground. And for the other parts, the hands and knees and feet, it's only mustahab to do so. That's the second opinion. The third opinion is the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah and his opinion is that it is sufficient uh, to put to prostrate the nose even if the forehead doesn't touch the ground he said it's sufficient uh, but the correct opinion is the first opinion because this opinion is supported by the clear text of the hadith that we have mentioned here he said I have been ordered to prostrate uh, on seven members of the body of seven bones and then he mentioned the seven of them that means all of them are included in that command and the command of the uh, Quran or command in the Sunnah indicates that something is obligatory unless there is an evidence 
showing that it wasn't meant to be obligatory, but it was meant to be an encouragement. Yani that it's mustahab, it's commendable to do so, but not absolutely obligatory. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions two points. The first of them is that it is wajib to make sajda or sujood or prostration on all of these seven bones. And this is the Madhab Imam Ahmed. Uh, and this, uh, the, the ruling that it is wajib is taken from the fact that the Prophet said that I ordered to do so. Uh, and also, the Shaykh says that the prostration on these seven bones it is a fulfillment of the obligation that is upon us to prostrate. This is the proper way to fulfill the obligation to prostrate and it is also an expression of ta'zeem or glorification or exaltation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we prostrate in this way with these all, all of these seven parts of the body touching directly touching the ground. And it is also an expression of humiliation and humbleness of the one who prostrates in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why prostration is considered to be an act of worship that is the exclusive right of Allah and it's not permissible to prostrate to anyone or anything other than Allah. Then the Shaykh says that there are two benefits also from this hadith that he will mention. The first benefit that we get from this hadith, he says, is that there is no harm. Uh, that one prostrate on some barrier, cloth or curtain or anything and that, that is a barrier between their uh, body and the earth that they are prostrating on. There is no harm in prostrating on a hive or a barrier other than the parts of the body that are used in the prostration, and other than the hands, feet or, 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 or knees. Because it is prohibited that one should place their forehead on their hands during the prostration. And if somebody was making sajda and they put their hands in the place of prostration and put their head on their hands, the hands is part of the uh, manner of prostration and it should not be used to prostrate upon, though if there is a need to place anything else on the ground, there is no harm in it. And for, for need or necessity. Uh, he said that it is makro to uh, prostrate on anything that is connected to the head such as clothing or your imama, turban or otherwise, gutra as they were in this part of the world, these things that are connected to the head should not be used to prostrate upon. Yani you shouldn't put any part of the imama, the turban or the gutra or anything that one is wearing between your uh, head and between the ground where you prostrate. Uh, except if there is a need to do so. Yani there is a need such as the ground is very hot, and it will burn your head. So you, you don't have anything to put there, maybe you will pull part of your head covering, butra or turban or whatever on the ground, kofi or anything that you may put there in order to protect your head from the heat or from the cold or from any yeah, anything that could cause harm to you such as thorns or stones or anything if you are pray, play, playing praying for example outside of the masjid and the ground is rough, you may put something in between uh, your head and the place of prostration. Um, there is no harm in such because there is a need for it. And also he says there is no harm, it is nothing at all detestable uh, to prostrate on any other barrier, cloth or otherwise, uh, that is not something connected to the head. Yeah, I mean just an independent thing such as a person needs use a handkerchief or prayer rug or anything else to pray upon, it's not attached to them, uh, there is no harm. 
uh, in doing so, he says. Uh, also, the second benefit that he mentions here concerning frustration, and there's a big difference of opinion concerning this point, uh, inshallah, I feel that it is a necessity to discuss it in some detail, but he mentions it in passing here, because there's a great difference of opinion about this matter, and just to bring some clarity to it, uh, we will quote from other sources, you know, that bring more clarification. Here the Shaykh Abdullah Hafidahullah says that uh, the placing of the parts of the body that are prostrated upon in sajda should be in order, should be in a certain order as it was done by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that order is to place, is for the knees to touch the ground first, then the hands, then the forehead along with the nose. The knees, the person when they went to prostration said, they should first let their knees hit the ground, then their hands, then their forehead. And he said that they should not uh, sit as the camel sits. That is, they should not put their hands first, then follow with their knees. Because the Prophet has prohibited this. And there are two common manners of frustration, and there are two opinions concerning this matter. Uh, that the first thing that should test the ground is the knees and then the hands, which is the opinion of the Shaykh. Uh, and the second opinion is to put the hands first before the knees, which is the opinion of other scholars of the past and of the present. And here I just want to read briefly some of the statements concerning this, which inshallah sort of clarifies the issue. One of the books that I mentioned as a resource uh, reference for this course of, of uh, the topic of Salat uh, is Kayfiyat to Salat al-Nabi sallallahu which is a small booklet by Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz rahimahullah and the comprehensive book which I recommended uh, is Sifat to Salat al-Nabi sallallahu which is by Sheikh Muhammad Nasibun al-Albani and in his book, in the book of Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz he says that uh, his own inclination or preference is that the knees should go first but if for any reason, difficulty otherwise, the person finds it easier to put the hands first and there is no harm in either manner. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Nasmi al-Albani says here concerning the manner of prostrating, what should go first. He narrates a number of hadith. One of them is the hadith reported by Ibn Khuzayma and Abdar Qutni and Hakim who said that it was Sahih and it was agreed upon by Zahabi and uh, whatever has contradicted or is in conflict with this hadith, Shaykh Muhammad Nazir al-Albani says the hadith with contradictory hadith are unauthentic. This hadith is authentic and it was the opinion of uh, uh, Imam Malik um, and other scholars uh, who reported this hadith with authentic Islam. In that hadith it said, كَانَ يَدْعَى يَدَيْهِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ قَبْلَ رَكْبَتَيْهِ that the Prophet used to put his hands on the ground before his knees. It is authentically, it is authentically reported that he used to do so, that he used to put his hands on the ground before his knees. Then he says, and he used to order that his companions to do so when he said to them in another hadith, which is authentic and is reported in the Sunnah of Abu Dawood and the Sunnah of Nasa'i, and other books of hadith with a authentic chain of narrators 
In that hadith, it is reported that the Prophet said, إِذَا سَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ If any one of you makes sajda, or when any one of you makes sajda, فَلَا يَبْرُكْ كَمَا يَبْرُكْ الْبَعِيَةِ Then he should not go down to the sitting position as the camel does. He should not do as the camel does. وَالْيَدْعَى يَدَيْهِ قَبْلَ رُقْبَتَيْهِ But he must وَالْيَدْعَى This is لَام الْأَمْرَ This command وَالْيَدْعَى But he must put his two hands يَدَيْهِ قَبْلَ رُقْبَتَيْهِ Before he puts his knees. This hadith is also authentic. Now, let me mention some other hadith which are applicable not to this point of difference, but also applicable to the prostration in India, worth mentioning the hadith in which the Prophet says, كان يعتمد على كفيه He used to lean upon his palms ويبسطهما and he used to uh, spread them ويدم يعني he used to stretch his hand out like this and he used to يدم أصابعهما يعني and he used to make his fingers come together وَيُوَجِّهُمَا وَيُوَجِّهُمَا قِبَلَ الْقِبْلَ And he used to point his fingers towards the Qibla. Uh, and he also says وَكَانَ يَجْعَلُهُمَا حَلْوَ مَنْ كِبَيْهِ And he used to place them uh, to the level of his shoulders in one authentic hadith وَأَحْيَانًا حَلْوَ أُذْنَيْهِ And sometimes he used to place them to the level of his ears and both of these are authentic. وَكَانَ يُمَكِّنْ أَنْفَهُ وَجَبْحَتَهُ مِنَ الْأَرْضِ And he used to make sure that his nose and his forehead touched the ground. And there is another statement of the scholars concerning this uh, issue uh, of the prostration, uh, particularly uh, whether or not the hands or knees should go first. But it is sufficient that these hadith are very clear and they are authentic. And the scholars who are specialists in hadith said that the hadith which contradicted uh, are unauthentic. There is no authentic narration contradicting it, contradicting it even though uh, some of those scholars who we respect very much and who we love very much uh, held a different opinion. But that which is more clear from the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, is that what he did and what he commanded us to do is to put the hands first preceding the knees. And Allah knows best. And there is no time to go into the whole of this issue, but I just wanted to read that, just uh, to clarify the fact that there are two opinions concerning this matter, and inshallah, Allah knows best, but the correct opinion appears to be the opinion that placing the hands first before the knees is the correct opinion. And some people said that uh, placing the knees first is more correct because the camel, when they uh, sit down, they put their knees first, or they put their hands first. And the Prophet said, don't do like the camels do. So that means you should put your knees first. But actually the scholars of Arabic language and the specialists in hadith and fiqh, the majority of them clarified and made it the, uh, beyond doubt. They clarified beyond doubt that the manner of the camel of sitting is that in fact the camel puts his knees first, but the knees of the camel are in his hands, not in his legs. And according to the Arabic language, what is called the knee of the camel is in his hand, his forearm, not in his hind legs. Therefore, this led to some confusion for some of the people, and the correct opinion is that the camel first puts his knees, and then his hands, and the opposite of that is what we should do, because we shouldn't sit like the camels, therefore we should first put our hands and then our knees, and Allah knows best. 
the next hadith is hadith number 83 and along with it hadith number 84 which are both dealing with the same topic the topic of pronouncing the takbir or saying Allahu Akbar in the salat the first hadith is the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا قام إلى الصلاة يكبر حين يقوم he said that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, whenever he stood up to perform the prayer he used to make takbir when he stood up يعني when he stood up to make the prayer he would start by making takbir saying Allahu Akbar and keep in mind that there is a distinction, a distinction between the takbir which is saying the word Allahu Akbar and the Rafa Yadain which is raising the hands when you say Allahu Akbar these are two different points the raising of the hands accompanies the takbir sometimes but not always as we mentioned there are four places where the takbir is accompanied by raising the hands the other takbirs are not accompanied by raising the hands but this hadith is talking about takbir just the saying of Allahu Akbar to the exclusion of the uh, issue of raising the hands which we already dealt with in the previous hadith so he said that the Prophet when he used to stand up for salat he used to say takbir then he used to say takbir when he made wuku then he used to say Allah listens or Allah hears the one who praises him he used to say this when he used to straighten up his back standing from Ruku. When he was rising up from Ruku, he used to say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Then when he was standing, he would say, He used to say, when he actually reached the standing position while he was standing, he would say, Rabbana walaka alham. Oh, our Lord, the praise belongs to you, and the praise belongs to you. ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَهْوِي Then he used to say Allahu Akbar when he was uh, bending down and going to sajda In some of the narrations as reported in the Sahih Muslim he said ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَهْوِي سَاجِدًا And when he used to bend down to go to prostration he used to say Allahu Akbar ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَرْفَعُ رَأْسَهُ Then he would say Allahu Akbar when he raised up his head meaning raising up his head from the first prostration ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَسْجُدُ Then he would say Allahu Akbar when he made the second prostration ثُمَّ يُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَرْفَعُ رَأْسَهُ Then he would say Allahu Akbar when he raised his head up uh, from that second prostration ثُمَّ يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ فِي صَلَاتِهِ كُلِّهَا حَتَّى يَقْضِيَهَا And he used to do like this in the whole of his prayer until he completed or finished from the prayer وَيُكَبِّرُ حِينَ يَقُومُ مِنَ الثِّنْتَيْنِ بَعْدَ الْجُلُوسِ And he also used to say Allahu Akbar at the time when he was standing up uh, from two rakah يعني after the sitting يعني the sitting for tashahud in the second rakah when he finished two rakah and he was standing up for the third he also used to say takbir The second hadith is the hadith uh, narrated hadith number 84 narrated from Al-Mutarrif Ibn Abdullah Ibn Shakhir uh, He said Qala salaytu ana salaytu khalfa Ali Ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu ana wa imranu Ibn Hussain radiyallahu anhu He said that I prayed behind 
Ali ibn Abi Talib, yani Ali was the Imam, I prayed behind him, I along with Imran ibn Hussein radiallahu anhu فَكَانَ إِذَا سَجَدَ كَبَّرَ So whenever he, that is Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, whenever he used to make prostration, he used to say takbir. وَإِذَا يعني he used to say Allahu Akbar. وَإِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ كَبَّرَ And when he used to raise his head up from the prostration, he used to say Allahu Akbar. وَإِذَا نَهَدَ مِنَ الرَّكَتَيْنِ كَبَّرَ And whenever he used to stand up after praying two raka, he used to for the third raka, he used to say Allahu Akbar. فَلَمَّا قَضَى الصلاة أخذ بيد إمران وابن حسين فقال يعني then when the prayer was finished when he had finished from the prayer إمران وابن حسين رضي الله عنه he took me by my hand and he said قد ذكرني هذا صلاة محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أو قال لقد صلى بنا صلاة محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم عليه الصلاة والسلام أو عليه الصلاة والسلام يعني he took me by the hand that is Imran ibn Hussein he was one of the Sahaba he was Sahabi رضي الله عنه he said to that man he said that this one meaning Ali ibn Talib has reminded me ذكرني هذا Muhammad he has reminded me of the prayer of Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah how he used to pray. Or he said, he has prayed with us, he has led us in the prayer in accordance with the prayer of Muhammad This was the end of the hadith. Here the Shaykh says concerning these two hadith which mention the takbirs in Salat. First he says that these two hadith, these noble hadith uh, clarify or um, and there is a clarification of a great sign of the Salat or a great aspect of the Salat and it is the affirmation or confirmation of the uh, greatness or supremacy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, and His magnificence in the uh, repetition of the pronouncement of the word Allahu Akbar every time you say Allahu Akbar it is affirmation or confirmation of the greatness the supremacy, the glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His magnificence. And this is something that we should try to concentrate on when we are praying, that when we are saying Allahu Akbar, that in fact it is meant to make us more conscious during the prayer that we are praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this acknowledgement uh, or pronouncement of His magnificence and greatness and supremacy in the word of Allahu Akbar is a reminder of such. When he says, uh, that this saying of Allahu Akbar has not been made as a sign or symbol uh, in the Salat and as a distinguishing characteristic of our Salat except due to the fact that it was legislated for glorification, exaltation and praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we are saying these words we should keep in mind the takbir of Ihram, the first takbir and that person is standing straight with their uh, standing upright straight uh, they should also be conscious of the fact that this is an introduction or the beginning of the entry into a communication with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when the person finishes from the recitation of Quran and they are going and they are bending going to the position of ruku they also should say Allahu Akbar and if a person raises from, or when they raise up from Ruku, they should say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and then they complete it when they reach the standing position by praising Allah and glorifying Him by the words, Rabbana wa Rakalham. 
uh, and this is upon returning to the best position and it is the standing position or the position of Al-Qiyam then the person makes takbir again when they bend to go to the position of prostration and they make takbir again when they raise their head from prostration and they should do uh, likewise in this manner for the whole of their salat until they complete it and if a person stood up from At-Tashahud Al-Awwal and the first Tashahud in the second Raka'ah in that prayer which has two Tashahud that is in the Dhuhr and Asr and Maghrib and Isha which have three or four Raka'ah there are two Tashahud in each of them in that case when the person stands after the first Tashahud they should also make Takbir at the time while they are rising up for the third Raka'ah concerning this, these two Hadith there is a number of differences of opinion uh, the Shaykh says concerning the first difference of opinion and it is uh, concerning the takbir or the takbirat the scholars are in agreement that it is obligatory the first takbirat al-ihram that it is obligatory uh, due to the many uh, hadith especially the hadith of the one who didn't perform his prayer properly it is mentioned specifically in that hadith the command or the, or the instruction to make takbirat al-ihram so the scholars are in agreement concerning the takbirat al-ihram that it is obligatory but they differ concerning the other takbirs after takbirat al-ihram the first opinion of the two opinions is that it's not obligatory and this is the majority of the scholars of the fifth and the second opinion is that it's obligatory and this is the opinion of Imam Ahmed and Dawood rahimahumullah Yameen, all of the scholars may Allah have mercy on all of them the first opinion is the, majority, is the opinion of the majority of the scholars of the fifth and they said that it is not obligatory the other takbir after tahbirat al-ihram and this is because uh, that which is obligatory in their opinion is those things which are mentioned in the salat uh, that was uh, mentioned or described by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in the hadith of the person who didn't perform his salat well whatever is mentioned in the hadith they said these are the obligatory things and whatever was not mentioned are less than that they are mustahab or sunnah or whatever so they said these takbirs after the tahbirat al-ihram are not mentioned therefore they hold that these are not obligatory Al-Hafiz al-Hajj al-Askarani in Fakr al-Bari the explanation of Bukhari says that the jamhur or majority of the scholars hold that it is mandub to make the takbirs other than takbirat al-ihram yani it's mustahab it's commendable but not obligatory this is the opinion of the majority the second opinion is the opinion of Imam Ahmed and Dawood al-Zahiri of the literalist Madhab al-Zahiriya and they said that it's the the takbirs for changing position going from one position to another that these takbirs are also obligatory and they use as proof the fact that the Prophet always did so yani it is not known that he ever used to change from one position to another except that he used to say Allahu Akbar except in the case uh, of rising from Ruku where he said Sami Allahu Liman Hamada Rabbana Lakal Ham in all the other positions he used to say Allahu Akbar even though not in every position uh, did he raise his hands but he always used to make the takbir they said since he always used to do it this is a proof that it's obligatory because he said I order you to pray as I have prayed or as, as you have seen me praying and they saw him praying making the takbir uh, all of them for the change of every position after the takbir al-ihram they also use as a proof that which has been reported from Abu Dawood from the authority of Ali ibn Yahya ibn Khalad from his uncle and this hadith is Sahih 
as reported in the Sahih of the Sunnah Abu Dawood by Shaykh al-Albani, rahimahullah, hafizahullah. In that hadith, he says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّهُ لَا تَتِمُّ صَلَاةٌ لِأَحَدٍ مِنَ النَّاسِ حَتَّى يَتَوَضَّعُ That the prayer of any one of you will not be complete, or any one of the people will not be complete until they make wudu. And then he mentioned in a long hadith uh, a number of things, and from amongst those things that he mentioned is the takbirat after takbiratul ihram. And he mentioned that your salat will not be complete until you make wudu, and until you make takbiratul ihram, until you make takbir for going to wudu, and sending Allah Muhammad when coming from wudu, and takbir for going to sajda, and coming from sajda, and so on. He mentioned all of the takbirat for changing positions, and in the end of that hadith he said again that your prayer will not be complete without these things. If it will not be complete without it, then they said that these things are necessary parts of, yani, obligatory parts of the salat. They also responded to the first group who said that it's not obligatory, that it's just mustahab or mandub. They said that their proof, the hadith of the one who didn't perform his prayer well, uh, that that hadith has been reported in a number of narrations. And in some of the narrations that's reported by Abu Dawood and the Tirmidhi and Nasa'i, it is specifically mentioned in that hadith that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said ثُمَّ يَقُولُ اللَّهُ أَكْبَرَ ثُمَّ يَرْكَعَ فَذَكَرَ بَكِيَةِ التَّكْبِرَاتِ يعني that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said then you should say Allahu Akbar then make wuku that means that the, that the takbir for wuku is also mentioned and in that hadith he mentioned the rest of the takbirat after the takbir to ihram so that even the hadith of the man who didn't perform his prayer well in the narrations that's reported by Abu Dawood and Al-Tirmidhi and Nasa'i, uh, the other takbirat are mentioned. So these are the two opinions. Those who said that it's wajib, that's the second opinion. And the first opinion is the opinion of the majority that they are not wajib, that they are mustahab. In any case, as we always say, those things that the scholars agree upon, that they are mustahab, even if there's difference of opinion about whether or not it's obligatory, if they all at least say that it's mustahab, why should we not do it? Because if something is mustahab, it means that it's loved by Allah and loved by the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that it's commendable and it's rewardable, and who is not in need of the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second point of difference of opinion is concerning whether or not uh, the the person who is performing prayer behind the Imam, the person who is the follower, the Ma'moon, whether or not they should join the two statements together, the Tasmi'ah, Sami Allah Imam Hamada, and the Tahmeed, Rabbana wa Laqa Alhamd. Let the person standing behind the Imam pronounce both of these statements, or only Rabbana wa Laqa Alhamd. Ma'am? <laughs> now, in any case, there are two opinions. One of them is, as you have said, but only the second one, the later one. The first opinion uh, is that it is obligatory, that it's wajib for every person who prays, whether they are the Imam, whether they are the Ma'amun, the follower, or whether they are praying alone. The first opinion is that it is obligatory on every person who is praying, and this is the opinion of a group of scholars from amongst Sahaba and from amongst Tabi'een, Muhammad ibn Sirin and Atta ibn Abi Rabah and from amongst the scholars of Hadith Ishaq ibn Rahawai and Abu Dawood and from amongst the Imams of the Madahib Al-Imam Malik Al-Imam Shafi'i and Imam Dawood Al-Zahiri All of these said that it's obligatory to say both So this is the first opinion 
lays as proof this hadith which we have just mentioned, the first of those two hadith, hadith 83, the hadith of Abu Hurairah, they said that this hadith is a proof that you should say both of them, because the Prophet said in that hadith, you should say when you are rising up, say Hamida, and when you stand up say Rabbana Lakal they said, they said, therefore, whoever is praying, it's general, it's applicable to everybody, and everybody has to say it. Uh, they also use a hadith which is not authentic, but in any case, the hadith reported by Ad-Darqutni from Buraida, radiallahu anhu, he said that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, Ya Buraida, ila rafa'ata ra'sak min al-ruku'u Allah liman hamida, Allahumma rabbana wa lakal hamd. To the end of the hadith, he said, O Buraida, whenever you raise your head up from ruku'u, I order you to say, فَقُلْ Say, Sami Allahi man hamida, Allahumma rabbana wa lakal hamd. But this hadith is not authentic, so it cannot be a proof for them, for those who say that you have to say both. The other thing that they use as a proof, they said that some of the scholars reported ijma' or consensus that it is obligatory on the person who prays alone, that it is obligatory on the person who prays alone to say both of them. Person who prays alone, and they said that the ma'amun or the follower who's following the imam, uh, that he falls under the same rule. Because they said that whatever is yani, confirmed for any person who is praying, then it is confirmed for any other person, there is no difference between them. Uh, the, second, the second group argued against this point, they said, no, it's not so, that whatever is confirmed for one is confirmed for the other, because the one who is praying alone is different than the one who is praying behind the Imam. The Imam is different than the people who are following him. There is a difference between people who are praying. The one condition of prayer is that you are the Imam. Another condition is that you are following, you are not the Imam. And another condition is that you are praying alone. All of these are three different conditions, and the second group said, no, there is a distinction between them. From amongst those who said that it's not obligatory to combine these two statements, at tasmiyah and tahmeed, sallallahu alayhi wa and rabbana lakal hamd, that it's not obligatory on the ma'amun, the follower. Also a group from amongst sahaba, including Abu Hurairah and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, radiallahu anhum ajma'in. They said uh, that it's not obligatory to make both of these statements for the ma'amun, the ones praying behind the imam. And from amongst the tabi'een, al-Sha'bi, and from amongst the scholars of hadith, Sufyan, al-Sawri, and from amongst the imams of the madahib, al-imam Abu Hanifa and his two companions, uh, and also imam Ahmed, and also al-imam al-Awza'i, and this has been reported in one narration even as the opinion of imam Malik. So all of them, they hold that it's not obligatory for the one who's following the Imam, who's standing behind the Imam, to make both of these statements. But as our brother said, he should only make the second statement. He is, he is in agreement with these scholars. Uh, their proof, the proof of these scholars that it's not obligatory is the hadith of Abu Hurairah that's reported by Shaykhain, that is Al-Bukhari and Muslim, that the Prophet said, إِنَّمَا جُعِلَ الْإِمَامِ That verily the Imam has been made to be followed. He has placed the Imam so that you will follow him. And in that hadith he said, the Prophet said, وَإِذَا قَالَ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ الْإِمَانِ حَمِدًا فَقُولُوا رَبَّنَا لَكَ الْحَمْدِ So if the Imam who is made to be followed, if he says, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ الْإِمَانِ حَمِدًا فَقُولُوا Then you, all of the other people who are following him, should say, رَبَّنَا لَكَ الْحَمْدِ they said this is the proof that the Imam is the one who should say Sami Allah Ali Muhammad and if he says that then you are not to say anything else except Rabbana Lakam Hamd. This is the argument of the second group 
they answered the opinion or the proof of the first group who said that it's obligatory to combine them and they said as for the hadith of, that we have mentioned here, hadith number 83 and 84 they said this is the description of the prayer of the Prophet وسلم, and he was either the Imam or the one praying alone but he was never a follower so in that hadith they said that he used to say but in the condition of what? the condition of either being the Imam or the condition when he was praying alone not when he was following anyone so they said that that hadith is not applicable to the one who prays alone but it's applicable to the one who is the Imam and the one who is praying alone they said yes for him he has to say both of them and for the one who is behind the Imam this hadith is not a proof for them they also said as for the hadith of Burayda the hadith is reported by Qudni, that that hadith in which the Prophet وسلم, told him that when you raise your head up uh, from Ruku then say they said that hadith is da'if so it cannot be used as a proof and as for joining by Qiyas the one who prays alone with the one with the Imam or the one who prays behind the Imam joining him under the same ruling as the Imam and the one who prays alone they said this is Qiyas and Qiyas is not allowed in the presence of a clear text and if there is a clear statement from the Quran or from the Sunnah then you have no right to make Qiyas you have to follow the clear instruction from the Quran and Sunnah but in the absence of a specific instruction in the Quran and Sunnah in that case you may make analogy or Qiyas then you may compare that situation which is not specifically mentioned in the Quran or Sunnah you may compare it to something that is mentioned if it is similar and make the same ruling for it but in the presence of a clear statement from the Sunnah it's not permissible and it's not proper to make Qiyas and Allah knows best from this hadith in the last moments uh, before we go to Salat the Shaykh mentions a lot of points quickly let us go through them the first of them is that it is legislated to do a number of things. The first of them that's legislated is takbiru to ihram. And the takbiru to ihram should be done at the time while the person is standing. Takbiru to ihram should be done while the person is standing. Unless they're unable to stand sick or otherwise, they have a legitimate excuse. Second, and also an exception from that, is the person who is traveling. If they are on their riding animal or in their car or whatever, and they're making natural prayers. As we said, you can make natural prayers on your riding animal. In that, pers- in that case, the person is not standing, but they are sitting, and it's permissible for them in that uh, condition to make takbir to ihram. Otherwise, the general rule is that takbir to ihram should be made while the person is standing. It's also legislated to make takbir at the time of going to ruku, and it should be done while the person is going to ruku, not before or after, but while you are in the process of going to ruku. Also, that for the imam and the one who prays alone, they should say the tasmiyah, sami Allah liman hamida, at the time when they are rising from ruku. And at tahmeed, saying Rabbana lakal ham, is for everyone, the imam, the ma'amun, the follower, as well as the one who prays alone, at the time while they are standing. When you are in the standing position, you say Rabbana lakal ham, or Rabbana wa lakal ham. Also, at tama'amina, that the person should be in a position, a calm position or calm state, after coming up from ruku, yani not coming up from ruku and immediately going to sajda, but should stand up and pause for a moment in a state of calmness. Also, the takbir at the time of going uh, from qiyam to sajda, at that time also uh, it is legislated to say Allahu Akbar, but not raising the hands at the time of going to sajda. And also the takbir at the time of raising up from sajda, that is when the person is going to the sitting between the two prostrations, takbir is legislated. Also without raising the hands. 
that all of what has been done, يعني أن يصل ما تقدم على تكوينت الأحلام خجينة وقعد يعني that all of these things that have been mentioned up until here should be done in every rak'ah except with the exception of tahbirat al-ihram tahbirat al-ihram is only in the first rak'ah in the beginning of the prayer everything else that we mention here should be done in every rak'ah and also the takbir at the time when the person is going to stand up while they're in the process of standing up from the first tashahud going to the standing position in the salat that has two sittings or two tashahud all of the salat that is except uh, all of the obligatory prayers are applicable here except the salat of fajr which only has one sitting and one tashahud or sitting for tashahud also he said that it is understood from the expression hina that the prophet used to make takbir hina raka'a or hina raka'a min ruku or hina sajada the meaning of hina here means at the time when he is doing that action yani that the time when the person is moving to ruku or coming from ruku or going to sajda while they are in the process of making that movement that's the time that they should be saying the takbir this is the meaning of hina it means at that very time that they are moving not before the movement nor after the movement but while they are moving and this is what has been legislated concerning this al-imam ibn Jaqiq al-Aid rahimahullah he said this is what has been the constant practice of the people that is the Muslims and it is the position of the imams of fiqh of all the lands one point you mean Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar now just in closing, uh, the final point uh, of the ahkam or rules or regulations derived from these hadith, the shaykh, the uh, last thing he said that Ibn Dakhil al said that this is what has been known to be the continuous practice of the Muslim people and the imams of fiqh of the different lands of the Muslim countries. And then he says, the last point is that Nasr uh, ibn al-Munir says that Tajdeed al-Takbir fi kulli raka'ah wa haraka bi mathabata Tajdeed al-Niyah The meaning of which is repeating or renewing the Takbir saying it again and again in every raka'ah and with every movement it takes the place or is in the same position as renewing one's intention I mean just as the person uh, says takbir when they move from every position it is as though they are renewing reminding themselves, reinforcing their intention over and over and over again that they are in salat and that they are doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just as we begin the prayer saying Allahu Akbar that Allah is the greatest, the supreme in every movement we keep repeating this as a reminder and we said it is similar or is in the same position or status as when we remove the intention especially when we know that we are unmindful too much when it is good for us to renew our intention or to renew our consciousness of the fact that we are standing in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then he closes by saying that it has been this is a fa'idah or extra benefit uh, he said that it has been reported in some of the narrations of hadith the words uh, when rising from ruku or when standing after rising from ruku Rabbana laka alhamd Rabbana laka alhamd and it has also been reported in other narrations the words Rabbana wa laka alhamd and with wow Rabbana wa laka alhamd 
That means that the law in the other narrations has been confirmed here, established that it is part of the supplication, Rabbana lakal hamd. It is also confirmed and established to say, Rabbana wa lakal hamd. And also in some narrations, Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. And adding Allahumma in front of both of these statements has also been authentically reported from the Prophet wasallam. has mentioned that Shaykh Nasuddin al-Albani and Sifat al-Salat al uh, and in fact, the, the, the wording with wow, Rabbana walakal hamd, is in the majority of the narrations of the hadith. It is the strongest narration and it is the preferable manner uh, for this zikr or these words of praise when a person has risen from ruku. It is better to say, although it's acceptable and correct to not pronounce the wow, but it is the most strongest and the preferable to say Rabbana walakal hamd, and even more than that, to say Allahumma Rabbana walakal hamd. This is the end of what we want to say today. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك If there are any comments or corrections or questions uh, we have a few moments, maybe five minutes before we go to prayer keeping in mind that corrections are requested and expected and desirable corrections, not only questions but also corrections last week I made a statement which somebody brought to my attention later on I said that uh, when going to sajda, you should not raise your hands when going to sajda. Uh, then I said after that, when going to ruku, you should not raise your hand. But I meant to repeat when going to sajda, I said to ruku. But for sure, uh, going to ruku is one of the places when raising of the hands is from the sunnah. Going to ruku and coming from ruku. So if someone uh, here's such a thing. This is why I mean, if there are any corrections, if there are any comments, corrections or questions, please bring it to my attention. Sometimes we are moving a little quickly due to lack of time and we might say something that we don't intend to say or I might even intentionally say something that is mistaken and you should, you should bring it and it's to my attention uh, so that we can correct it. Hey, uh, you have a comment, well. Yeah, that's another issue. <laughs> there are many detailed issues concerning the Salat that we cannot cover in this brief study. But, as I said, there are some books available, even in English, that are summarized that a person may read quickly to know the basics of Salat. If anyone needs, even we have this big book which I said is a comprehensive study of, of Salat, Sifat Salat Nabi Bashir Nasr al Albani. That book, there is even a summarized version of it, a small pamphlet, summarized, in a few pages. And that summary, as well as the comprehensive version, are both available in English. They have both been translated. In any case, the point I want to say is that there are many issues that we cannot cover in a comprehensive, I mean, in a subject such as Salat. We cannot cover every single point of it, but we can refer to those books. Those who want the general summary of the Salat can go to the smaller books, and those who want more details can go to such a book as this. You will find every, inshallah, every aspect of the Salat from the beginning to the end, mentioned in detail, with proofs, and discussion with the difference of opinion and reference to the authenticity of the hadith 
of different opinions uh, so that the issues become very, very clear. But of course, to go through a book such as this, what we are going through is only a few hadith, 40 or 50 hadith. In this book, maybe we will cover about three or 400 hadith. How can we complete it? But it's available in English. This book of Sheikh Al-Abdani is available in English. It's translated and it's available. It's published in London. Perhaps even it was on sale here in some of the bookstores here. Inshallah, if we look for it, perhaps we can find it. Or we can order it. It's important. It's a very, very valuable book. And I recommend that everyone should have it. Because Salat is the first thing that we will be questioning on Yom Qiyamah. If the Salat is correct, the other deeds will follow. And if not, the opposite. That means the Salat is important. After a Tawheed, and the correct belief in Allah and the next most important thing of all the actual Muslims is the Salat we should, we should really spend time reading about it, studying it, asking about it and trying to perfect our Salat the knowledge of it and then the practice of what we study you have a question then? but uh, and anyway about your question about the standing there are two opinions some people said to stand up by uh, leaning on the hands and others said you should not lean on the hands that's an issue that requires some discussion and Allah knows that but the most correct opinion is to lean on the hands and there are a number of authentic hadith concerning this and Shaykh Nasruddin al-Albani reports them in this hadith with the references, four references for those hadith which prove that the Prophet used to do so he used to lean on his hands when standing up on the palms on the palms although there are some scholars who differ with this and they make some arguments such as uh, Sheikh Zaid, uh, uh, Abu Zaid, Dr. Uh, Abu Zaid, one of the contemporary scholars in Saudi Arabia today, uh, he wrote a long essay concerning this issue in which he, one of the points he mentioned was that the issue uh, of the Nakhuz on standing is not from the Sunnah, but in any case, there's difference of opinion about it. I said that it's a long discussion and the most correct opinion from what I have studied and what I have read is that it is really from the Sunnah to one stands on the knuckles when standing up for uh, the next rakah. Yani this is done um, in the salat um, when the sitting position is completed and the person is standing up for the next rakah. That is similar to do so. And Allah knows best. Perhaps if there is time, we may mention some of the proofs of both sides, uh, but not in this. And in another sitting, we will mention the proofs of both sides and, and compare them and see which one is stronger. Now, but. Raising of the hands, the raising of the hands are on four occasions. There is a question. Can somebody take that question from the door? The raising of the hands are on four, four uh, positions, as mentioned in the authentic hadith, which we reviewed today and which we studied last week. It is when you begin the prayer, and when you are standing, you are going to bowing position, you should raise your hands. And when you are coming from the bowing position, you should raise your hands. You don't do so. In any case, we said that there is difference of opinion about this. And the Hanafi Madhab, their opinion is that it is not mustahab to raise the hands except in the first takbir when you begin the prayer. That's their opinion. But the correct opinion that's clarified and confirmed in authentic hadith is that you should raise your hands in four positions, four positions that we mentioned. Going to Ruku, coming from Ruku, in the beginning of the prayer, in the first rakat, takbir to ihram, 
and in the third rakah, after standing from the sitting of the second rakah. Okay, let me just uh, see if I can read this question. You should raise your hands to your shoulders or to your ears. Not touching the ears, but to the level of the shoulders or level of the ears. What? No, not when going to prostration. Not when going to prostration. When going to bowing. Roko and coming from Roko. Not for prostration. There's one question from the sisters. If one is observing Salat, Isha or any of the other Salat on the second rakah, stand up instead of sitting, how to complete the Salat? Now if somebody uh, after the second rakah is supposed to stand, like an example of Isha or Salatul or Asa or Maghrib that has two sittings and they didn't sit, how should they complete the Salat? If they realized it before they stood up completely, they should go back and sit. If they realize it after they stood up completely, then they should continue praying and make sajda sahwa. And two prostrations for forgetfulness at the end of the salat before making tasleem. Before one touch Quran, is it compulsory to make wudu? The opinion of the majority of scholars uh, is that a person should be in state of tahara, either by wudu or ghusl. Whichever one is needed, they should be in state of Sahara before touching the Quran. But the correct opinion is the opinion of normality that it is not obligatory to be in state of wudu, but it is preferable. It is mustahab in respect of the Quran, but there is no sahih, sahih proof. Sahih, there is no authentic proof that is sahih as well as sahih, clear. There are some authentic hadith that are not clear concerning this matter, but seem to suggest it. But don't clearly suggest it, and it does not mean that. And there are some hadith which clearly mention it, but they are not sahih. So if it is either, if it is sahih but not clear, it is not a proof. And if it is clear but not sahih, not authentic, it is not a proof. There is no hadith that has both. That is sahih, correct, authentic, and sahih, clear on this point. Therefore the correct opinion, which this is a long discussion, and there is some uh, research that uh, perhaps we will try to put together. It has been translated, but and it's only handwritten. It needs to be typed up and edited and put together concerning this matter. Uh, perhaps, inshallah, in the future we will do so. Which show clearly that it is not obligatory to be in state of Sahara to touch the Quran, but it is preferable. It is preferable. And there is no reason why a person who can make wudu when they want to read Quran, why they shouldn't make wudu. But if the one cannot get in wudu, maybe the woman who is in Memphis, she cannot change her condition until the Memphis finish. Three days, four days, five days, six days, she has no control over such. Then she is uh, excused. But the one who can make wudu or make ghusl, they shouldn't read the Quran yani, without being state of Sahara. Any final question before we go? Can you just find this one? You seen so many? Kissing the Quran. Can you when the person finish reading the Quran, they kiss it and do this like this? This is this is a practice that uh, some people the kissing of the Quran uh, after reading it is a practice as far as I know uh, that has it has no basis in the Sunnah and there is no proof for doing so. And it is not recommended or commendable to do it. If the Prophet didn't do it, nor did he command anyone to do it, nor did he suggest that anyone should do it, nor did the Sahaba 
رضي الله عنه اجمعين. They didn't do it. Then why should we do it? Do we love the Quran more than companions of the Prophet For sure we don't. We don't love Quran more than them. We don't love Islam more than them. We don't love Allah more than them. If it was something to do that was good, they would have done it. If it was good, they would have done it. But they didn't do it. This is a proof that it's not legislated and it should not be done. It is an innovation. And every innovation is astray. And every astray or misguidance is in the hellfire. It is of those things that should be avoided. And we should also try as best we can to remind our brothers or sisters, whether relatives, neighbors, friends or strangers, we should try to remind them or to bring it to their attention that there is no proof for this practice and it is better to avoid it. If you really want to show your love for the Qur'an, the real expression of love of the Qur'an is studying it, memorizing it, and practicing it, not kissing it. People reading Qur'an and kissing it, but they don't practice any of it. So what? It's going to the extreme. But it is only an outward expression of love, but the real outward expression of love of Qur'an is practicing it, living our life. And most of the people you see doing so, they unfortunately, and I'm not making an accusation against anybody, but most of the people who are doing so are doing it due to their lack of knowledge of Islam. If they really had knowledge of Islam, they wouldn't be doing so. And that means that this is an indication. The person who doesn't have knowledge, it is an indication of their carelessness and their lack of concern about their deen. If they really love the deen, they would give attention to it. Like they give attention to the things they love. Their cars and their homes and other material things. They give all attention to it. They read about it to know exactly how to work it and how to maintain it and how to keep it in good condition. But as for the dean, they don't uh, care to read about it, to know about it, or to know how to practice it properly. Some of them do it in front of the imam. Perhaps the imam is like them. <laughs> he also doesn't know. May Allah help us to come closer to the sunnah and give us the strength and the success and ability to call other people to the sunnah. That we practice it ourselves and call others to it. This is very important. That we don't be selfish, but we should try as best we can to invite other people to the sunnah and to discourage the innovations that have crept into the religion over the centuries. Mm-hmm.